Welcome to the Baptist Pulpit. This podcast is designed to introduce to the audience Baptist preachers, both living currently in America or across the world, and also to introduce classic speakers, men of the past. There were Baptist preachers that have inspired men like myself for years to preach the Word of God. And they also, through their preaching, highlight Baptistic principles. Welcome to the Baptist Pulpit, our featured speaker. This week is Dr. R.B. Willett. Dr. Willett is Pastor Emeritus of First Baptist Church of Bridgeport, Michigan. Dr. Willett pastored the First Baptist Church of Bridgeport, Michigan for 44 years, and the church has grown under his leadership, saw many uh, people saved. He's the author of several books and even has recorded some music albums. But he's a well-known preacher a coveted preacher for conferences here in America. Pray that the message will be a blessing to you today. of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 23, we'll read verses 8 through 12, 2 Samuel and the 23rd chapter, verses 8 through 12. Had a number of our college students home today, that was a blessing, many of them have already had to go back. I did look down and see that Dan Black is still here. Uh, I'm not sure Dan really was at college, would you stand up a minute Dan, please? I think what he did is join one of those neo-Nazi skinhead groups and his hair grew out just enough for him to come back and, uh, and not let us necessarily guess that. But Dan, we're glad you're here. Proud of all of our young people off at college, many of them preparing to serve the Lord full-time. Aaron Bays is still here tonight. Good. And uh, we're glad Aaron is here. A whole bunch of them are here this morning. Anybody else here still home from college? Um, wave at me. Julian Canales, I think, already went home. And everybody here went home, went back from home to college. All right, but we're glad to have them here. 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 8. These be the names of the mighty men whom David had, the Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains. The same was the Dino, the Esnite. He lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahahite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defiled the Philistines that were gathered together to battle and the men of Israel were gone away. He arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword and the Lord wrought a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to spoil. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines were gathered together into a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils. 
And the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. Heavenly Father, help me, I pray, to preach with power, to be able to say exactly what you want to be said. I pray that you'd give me a good voice. I pray that you'd bind the devil and his demons, that they would not interfere with us. I pray, dear Father, that you'd help our hearts to be open to your truth. And God, I pray that you'd bless not only the preaching and not only the hearing, but also the responding to your word. Bless the invitation. I pray that you'd speak to us, challenge us, stir us, correct us, encourage us, strengthen us, and make us more what we ought to be at this time. And we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Shammah was not one of David's main mighty men when we read the beginning of what happened to him, but he was about to be. In fact, he's one of the first three that are mentioned in this listing of David's mighty men. I want you to notice three things tonight. I want you to notice the attack. And then I want you to notice the alarm that was sounded and how people responded to that alarm. And then finally, I want you to notice the accomplishment. The Bible says that Shammah was standing in a field that was full of lentils. Who knows what lentils are? Beans, yeah. What kind of beans are they? Dried peas? Yeah, that may be. The, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia said they're a small reddish bean. Were these small reddish dried peas? They were if you filled tomato sauce on them, all right? <clears throat> but they're beans, basically. So here's the story. Uh, this guy's in the bean field, and all of a sudden the Philistines, well organized, gather together in a troop, come out to attack the bean field or attack the Israelites that are in the bean field, and everybody runs away except Shammah. Now, the Bible does not say simply that he fought the Philistines. The Bible says that he stayed and defended the ground. That'll be important we get a little bit further on in the story when we talk about why they wanted to attack. And let's, let's talk about the attack and notice the purpose of the attack. Here is the Israelite army, and here is Shammah. And here comes the Philistines, and all the Israelites run away, and the Philistines do not run after the Israelites. That's interesting, isn't it? Shammah stays there. If they're just trying to wipe out some of the people of God and only one man stayed, I think they'd charge after the main group of them and try to get a great victory. And so I must conclude by the fact that the Bible says the field was full of lentils and by the fact that Shammah defended the ground and the Philistines did not chase after the Israelites when they took off, I must conclude that the purpose of the attack was to steal the harvest. You remember when Gideon was called by God to raise up an army and deliver Israel from the oppression of the Midianites. What was Gideon doing when God came and talked to him? Does anybody know? Raise your hand if you think. What was Gideon doing when God came and spoke to him? Brother Swain? He was threshing a little bit of wheat. Where was he doing it? Hiding behind a wine press. You know why? Because the Midianites came and they stole the harvest. The Israelites had been driven out of their homes. They lived in caves and sometimes perhaps in the fields and, and they didn't have much to eat because every time that the crops came to harvest, the Midianites would come and take them. And so Gideon, to get a harvest, had to go back behind the wine press where he was not likely to be noticed and thresh some wheat. The purpose of the attack was to steal the harvest. I want to make sure you understand that. I'm going to ask you what was the purpose of the attack and you're going to say the purpose of the attack was to what? steal a harvest now listen to me that's always the purpose of the attack 
You understand that? Let's suppose that Danny Black here, I say Danny so you know I'm not talking about his dad, but he's old enough to be Dan. The diminutive E has been dropped from his name for many years by most of us. Let's say that Dan Black does go out and join a neo-Nazi group. Would that be godly or ungodly? Ungodly. Uh, and let's say that he believes some of their rhetoric, and let's say that he even gets involved in beating up people, and let's say that he murders somebody. Assuming, as I do, that Dan is truly saved, what happens when he dies? He goes to heaven. Yeah. You know why? Because the Lord Jesus says he holds his children in his hand, and no man can take them out of his hand. The Bible says that once I am saved, I am eternally secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. The lady couldn't understand this. She was talking to Dr. Curtis Hudson, and she said, well, wait a minute. I can understand why when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for my past sins, the sins that I committed before I got saved, but I cannot understand how he could have died on the cross and paid for my future sins. And Curtis Hudson said, lady, when Jesus died, all your sins were future. You understand that? I mean, if Jesus knew the sins you were going to commit before you got saved and paid for them when he shed his blood on the cross, he knew the sins you are going to commit after you got saved and paid for them when he shed his blood on the cross. So if the devil comes and gets Dan Black to become a neo-Nazi, he does nothing to destroy his eternal destiny. Because you know what he does do? Keeps him from winning souls. Keeps him from being a good testimony, keeps him from filling a bus, keeps him from building a Sunday school class, keeps him from telling other people how they can be sure that they're on their way to heaven. Now mark it down. I hope that you can see it in these very stark and clear terms. The devil's purpose in attacking is always ultimately to steal the harvest. He wants to dishonor God. He wants to discredit God. He wants to show that he's better than God. And he wants everybody possible to burn in hell forever with him. Mark it down the next time you're tempted to gossip what the devil's trying to use you to do is steal the harvest you know not too many people get saved as a result of gossip you know some people get turned away from god and from his church as a result of gossip the next time the devil tempts you to to get discouraged and down in the mouth and sit home and feel sorry for yourself understand the devil is trying to steal the harvest discouraged people don't knock on many doors they don't win many souls they don't present a good testimony for the lord jesus christ when that temptation comes and you want to reach out and take that thing that god has forbidden and engage in that activity that god has said you ought not to do remember it's not just a matter of you and that thing you want to do it is not just between you and god the devil is trying to steal the harvest that bitterness that seeps up in your soul that grudge that you hold over somebody's wrong behavior to you that irritation that you allow to fester until it becomes anger until it it soaks into sour bitterness and makes you upset every time you think of that person's face the devil's whole goal in causing you to think like that is to take the harvest the devil always wants to steal the harvest ask yourself a question you willing to send people to hell so you can gossip on the telephone you willing for people to die and go to hell so that you can sit around and wallow in self-pity you willing to hold a grudge so that uh, uh, and have as the result of that people go to hell you willing for folks to die without christ because you've let bitterness stay in your soul are you willing to yield to that temptation knowing the result will be that somebody who could have been saved may not be saved because you sinned the purpose of the attack was to what steal the harvest Next time the devil comes to you, you understand what he's got in mind. 
His whole goal is to steal the harvest. Notice quickly the plan of attack. The Bible says that the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils. Two things I notice about their plan. Number one, they were united. They were gathered together. And number two, they were organized. Then they got everybody together and they said, we are as an army going to go and steal the harvest from this bean field. You know, there's a great deal to be said for people uniting and organizing to do the work of God. Let me tell you what we're going to do. One of these days soon, the Lord willing, we're going to get everybody we can to go out on a Thursday night. We're going to try to get the bus workers to go on Thursday, the fisherman's club to go on Thursday, Tuesday morning, soil winning ladies to go on Thursday, the foster club go on Thursday night, teenagers go on Thursday night, and I'd like to get about 200 people and send them all to the village of Bridgeport, knock about 2,000 doors one night. I'd like them to wonder what in the world hit them. I like to go to work the next morning and say, man, there's these crazy people from that Baptist church and they're all up and down my street and I'd like somebody two, three miles away to say, man, they're all up and down my street too. There are about 12,700 people according to the last census that live in Bridgeport. If you knocked on 2,000 doors, you would probably represent six to 8,000 of those people whose doors you had knocked on in one night if you got united and got organized. Man, it'd be good everybody in the work of God who is saved and fundamental and born again say, I want to be part of the fight. I want to be there when the battle takes place. But I want you to notice, secondly, the alarm the alarm that spread among the Israelites was understandable. I notice it appears to me at least that there was fear when the Philistines came. The Philistines were gathered together in a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils and the people fled from the Philistines. You usually don't run away unless you're afraid. I think it's reasonable for us to assume that they saw the Philistine army coming and they were fearful. It may have been the Israeli army. It may just have been a bunch of folks out picking beans. Maybe they didn't have much to defend themselves with except the basket or the bag they put the beans in. Maybe they saw the Philistines with their swords buckled on and their shields held up and their spear in their hand and they said, man, we don't have a chance. We're out of here. I understand their fear. I think it's natural. I remember my dad saying when he would preach that the people who say they're not afraid of anything are either fools or liars. It's good to be afraid of some things. You ought to be afraid of sticking your fingers in the electrical socket, especially if you're standing in water. You ought to be afraid of rollerblading down I-75 on a Sunday afternoon when everybody's coming back from up north. You ought to be afraid, and you ought to be afraid of the results of sin in your life. It's fine, it's natural, it's excusable, it's understandable. But when the alarm came, there was not only fear, there was also flight. And they ran. They said, oh boy, look at those Philistines, we're gone. We're not going to stay here. Now, to run from the enemy, the flight was not understandable. It was not excusable. It was not natural and normal. Because my Bible says that God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is instructed by the Spirit of God to write, nor of me 
his prisoner. He says, yeah, it may be natural. It may be fleshly. It may be normal to be afraid. But God doesn't give you that fear. And don't run. Don't be cowardly. Don't turn aside. Stand there and fight. And I like old Shema because when everybody else ran and took off in fear, he stood. Boy, we need some Shamas today. I look around fundamentalism and I wonder sometimes where are the Davids who will pick up a slingshot and five smooth stones and say to King Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. I'll take care of Goliath. Where are the Elijahs that will stand up in front of the king and say to the king, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, it will not rain for the next three years, nor will there even be dew on the earth except by my word. Where are those Elijahs who stand up on Mount Carmel and look at the Israelites torn between the worship of God and the worship of Baal and look down on them and say how long halt you between two opinions if the Lord be God then follow him and if Baal be God follow him and willing to back up his challenge by saying why don't we have a little contest and we'll let you call on, on your God to send fire from heaven and I'll call on my God to send fire from heaven and the God that answers by fire let him be God there are the Gideons who have an army of 32,000. God starts winnowing it out. He says, send home everybody who's afraid and 22,000 leave. He said, now take them down to the stream and have them get a drink. And if they lap putting the water to their mouth with their hand, you keep them. And if they stick their head in the water and drink, you send them home. And of the 10,000 who were not cowards, 9,700 were careless. And all of them had to go back. And now Gideon has 300 men. He doesn't have a spear. He doesn't have a sword. He doesn't have, as far as we know, a slingshot. He doesn't have a dirk or a dagger or a shield. His only weapons are pitchers and lamps and trumpets. And with 300 men, he goes against one. 135,000 Midianites and he wipes them out by the power of God. He didn't run. Where are the preachers that will stand up and say this book is the word of God and deacons can like it or lump it and long-tongued gossips can be happy or unhappy and teenagers can sit with their arms folded slouched in their chairs, give them a dirty look or sit on the edge of their seat and say amen and the crowds can increase or the crowds can can decrease but I'm going to say what God says in his book. We're those young people that will stand up and look their friends in the eye and say, boy, buddy, don't you talk like that around me. You want to give that gossip and that garbage, you go someplace else. I'm not listening to that. Well, those young people that will say, hey, either you turn the radio off or I'm getting out of this car, I'm not going to listen to that kind of filth. Well, those men that will say, I'm going out soul winning. I'm knocking on the doors. I'm telling people about the Lord Jesus. Boy, I, I'm glad we got guys that are hunters and woodsmen and fishermen, and I enjoy that, and I admire that, and I appreciate that, but I want to tell you something. It doesn't take near as much courage to put a 308 rifle on a deer 50 yards away and pull the trigger as it does to go out and tell people, Jesus died for your sins. Where are those ladies that say, hey, we better not talk about this. I'd like to talk about something better than this. If this is all you got to talk about, if all you got is gossip and complaint and criticism, why don't you hang up the phone? Where are those Christians who when somebody starts to cry, say, wait a minute, I want to write this down. How do you spell your last name? So when I go tell the people you're talking about what you said, I will quote you correctly. 
Now, by the way, if you want to say it about them and you won't say it to them, you're a coward and a sneak and a thief and a louse. Why is it you want to run around behind their back and criticize them and won't say it to them? Preacher called up my friend Tom Harrison one time. He said, did you hear what Willette said? And Harrison said, I don't know, what did he say? And he quoted, it wasn't such a terrible quote. He said that I said the day of expository preaching was dead. I'd said no such thing, but I had preached against dead preaching. And but Harrison said, well, did you call him and ask him about it? He said, oh, no, I wouldn't want to call him. And Harrison, Brother Harrison said, real good. You'll call me and tell me what he said, but you won't talk to him about it and try to get something done. I sent Brother Harrison the tape. He found out I didn't say what the man said. I said, no, that's no big deal, but it is an example of the kind of cowardice that exists in people who run around and gossip. Man, somebody ought to stand up and say, if everybody else leaves, I'm staying. If everybody else runs, I'll remain. If, anybody, if everybody else says, I'm out of here, I'll stay here because this is God's ground and it's God's harvest and I'm not going to let the Philistines come and steal the harvest. I won't let the devil steal the harvest from God. But I want you to notice, thirdly, the accomplishment. It was a singular act that Shammah performed. The Bible says he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. Everybody else ran. All conventional wisdom would say that Shammah should have hightailed it out of there because there's no way he's going to destroy a well-organized troop of Philistines all by himself. He didn't have an M16 automatic rifle. He didn't have mortars to fling down on them from a distance. He didn't have hand grenades or flamethrowers. We don't know from the Bible whether he had any weapon or not. But the Bible says he stood. Somebody said, I'm only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do, and by the grace of God, I will do. And one of the great devices of the devil, I believe, is to whisper in the ears of God's people, your part doesn't make much difference. It doesn't matter if you don't invite anybody to the program next week. It doesn't matter if you don't go out soul winning this week. It doesn't matter if you don't take some tracks and pass them out while you're out and about town doing your business. It doesn't matter if you don't stand. It doesn't matter if you don't say watch it you're not going to do that around me it doesn't matter what you do because you're only one what difference does it make i'll tell you what difference it made in second samuel chapter 23 it made the difference between victory and defeat it made the difference between full tummies and hungry empty bellies it made the difference between god's name being glory and god's people being a reproach it made a big difference what one person did noah was the only one he and his family that god found righteous in all the earth you ever stop to think what it would have been like if Noah had just gone along with the crowd? You wouldn't be here. God was minded to destroy the entire earth. He saw that the imagination of the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually. He said, I'll destroy man whom I've made from off the face of the earth. It repented the Lord God that he had made man. It grieved him at his soul. But 
But Noah, hello, Noah only, Noah singularly found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God said, I'll spare Noah and his wife and his boys and their wives. And eight people were saved and everybody who lives today is a descendant of Noah and his family. One man. John the Baptist was the only voice crying in the wilderness. Nobody else carried his message. Nobody else supported his cause. Nobody else rallied around and stood up with him and said, Yes, old John is right. This is true. But I want to tell you, he stood up and said, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. He says, There cometh one after me who is before me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. And he said, The Messiah is coming. The Redeemer is coming. Jesus is coming. He was the only voice. But that was enough. And the crowds came and the soldiers got right and the, the wicked people began to be righteous and repentance was preached by John the Baptist and he did prepare the way for the Messiah, Jesus, to come. He was the only one bold enough to stand up and point his finger in the face of Herod and say, you are living with your brother's wife and it is not lawful for you to have her. He lost his head for that. But I want to promise you this, people all over the world know who John the Baptist is, and they've forgotten all about Herod and Herodias and all of that wicked bunch. Only three Hebrew children wouldn't bow. Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to make up this big golden image, and when you hear the sound of the flute and the psaltery and the sackbut and all the other instruments, the dulcimer, you must bow down to the golden image which I have prepared. He said, if anybody doesn't bow down, I'm going to throw them into a burning, fiery furnace. It wasn't just a fiery furnace. It was a burning, fiery furnace. I don't mind those fiery furnaces as long as they're not burning, fiery furnaces. And they play the music, and everybody bows except three Hebrews. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king calls them in. He says, what do you mean by this? You guys are pretty high up in my bureaucracy here. You've got big positions in my government. Didn't you hear what I said? I'm going to give you one more chance. You better bow down when the music comes or I'm throwing you into that burning, fiery furnace. And they said, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. You know, they said, we're not full of care. We're not worried about what we're about to tell you. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace which thou hast prepared, and if not, be it known unto thee, we will not bow down nor worship the image which thou hast prepared. Nebuchadnezzar got so upset, he told him to make the furnace seven times hotter than it already was. That's pretty stupid. You know, if you burn in one burning, fiery furnace or in another furnace, Fiery furnace seven times hotter, you're just equally dead. I'll show you, buddy. I'm not going to execute you with a 30-30. I'm going to execute you with a cannon. You'll really be dead then. They made it so hot, the people keeping the furnace fell down dead just by the entrance of it. They bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and threw them into the furnace. And I love it. Nebuchadnezzar was looking in there and said, Whoa, wait a minute. He said, didn't we put three men in the furnace? Yes, king, we put three men in the furnace. He said, then how come I see four men loose and walking uh, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found that in the fire of affliction, the only thing that burned was that which bound them, and they were free in the furnace. And then he said, and the fourth is like under the Son of God. Jesus was with them in the furnace. Glory to God. Where are the three Hebrew children? Where are the Davids? Where are the Elijahs? There was a time in the history of Israel when God's people had turned far from him. The prophets were profane. The holy things had been desecrated. Lies and cheating and adultery characterized the behavior of God's people. And God said, judgment is going to come like a plague. And he said, I just need one man. If I could find one man to stand in the gap and make up the hedge before me, then I would not destroy the land. And he looked around the land of Israel and he couldn't find one. It just took one. They only needed one. It was a singular accomplishment. Shammah was one man, but one man was all God needed to do his work. It was a spiritual accomplishment. The Bible says the Lord wrought a great victory. Now, he wouldn't have done it if Shammah hadn't stayed, but Shammah couldn't have done it without God. It doesn't matter how big they are. It doesn't matter how powerful they are. It doesn't matter how organized they are. It doesn't matter how unified they are. It doesn't matter how overwhelming the odds are. When somebody said this years ago, they were right. You and God make a majority. God just wants somebody to be faithful. I got home from Montana Thursday. Brother Miss Owen picked me up at the Detroit airport. We got to our house, I think, a little before 6 o'clock. I visited with my wife and children for a little bit, came into the church, went through some mail, and I was tempted not to go out soul winning that night. My voice was bad. I could barely talk right down about this level, and if I got any higher than that, hurt me to talk. I'd go to make words and nothing come out. And I was really tempted to weep out, wimp out. I had to teach a class in the Bible Institute about 9, 10. And, and I, I thought, man, if I go out and talk to people now, I, I'll get out there and, and my, I won't have anything. But I did what I was supposed to do. I had a card somebody put in the offering plate said, would you visit the Chapman family at 1905 Weber? I didn't know who they were, didn't know who the people's name on the card asked me to make the visit were. And I went out, knocked to one door, and people I was looking for weren't home, and talked to the other guy that answered the door. He said he was saved. I went over to the Chapman's house, and Mr. Chapman opened the door, looked at me a little bit, finally let me in. House is filled with smoke. I thought, boy, this is going to be good for my voice. You know? This will be wonderful. And I sat down and opened the Bible, and I found out that the son was James M. Chapman, and the father was James A. Chapman, and both of them bowed their head and accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. The son didn't come today. He said he had six kids with him he had to take care of, but the father came and made a public profession of faith in Christ and got baptized, and that wouldn't have happened if I'd wimped out on Thursday night. God saved him. God did it. You know, God didn't need much. He didn't need somebody strong, healthy, with a good voice. He just needed somebody to be there. I don't know anything about Shammah. Doesn't say he was a good soldier. Doesn't say he was well-trained. Doesn't say he had a muscular build. But it does say when everybody else ran, he stood there. 
It was a singular accomplishment. It was a spiritual accomplishment. The Lord brought a great victory. And it was a sensational accomplishment. All the Philistines wiped out. Shammah wins. The beans are saved. The harvest is spared. The Israelites are able to be fed. He becomes promoted to one of David's mighty men. He goes down in history. He becomes an example forever. I read the biography of Winston Churchill a year or two ago. First time he ran for Parliament, he was soundly defeated. But after that, as a young man, he was serving as a war correspondent in the Boer War, B-O-E-R. Not the kind of Boer War that preachers are, B-O-O-R, but the B-O-E-R War. He was captured. He escaped, and the story of his escape spread across the world, and he came home a hero and ran for Parliament again and was elected. Winston Churchill had times of tremendous crushing defeat when though he was popular in his home district and always went back to Parliament, the, the opinion of all the nation of England seemed to be against him. One such time was when a man over in Germany named Adolf Hitler came to power. Winston Churchill stood up again and again and he said, this man is evil. We must defend ourselves. We must prepare. And everybody laughed. They were tired of war. World War I had not been that long before the time when Hitler began to start up the German war machine again. They didn't want to lose any more sons on the battlefield. They didn't want to die. They didn't want to see the bloodshed. And they said, no, we have to have peace. And their slogan became, peace at any price. Winston Churchill was mocked and scorned and ridiculed. The market for his writings, which he used to support himself, for he had, not, he had been left a title and, a, and an estate, but no money to sustain himself. And the market for his writings began to weaken and soften and dry up, and critical attacks came day after day after day in the newspaper, but he never gave up. He stood up again and again and again. He was shouted, he was jeered, he was mocked, he was insulted in that forum they have in England in their parliament where the opposing party can call you down and make fun of you and call your names in the middle of your speech but he never wavered and one day after Hitler had gone into Czechoslovakia and Vienna and other places and the people of England began to wake up and realize there next one day Neville Chamberlain's appeasement policies were seen for the empty shell that they were and he was out and Churchill was in and Winston Churchill with the power of his gravelly voice his peculiar diction and his indomitable will held the English people up to a battle and won the Second World War. One man. One man. Why don't you say, I don't care what the devil does, I'll stand in the bean field. I'm not going to let him steal the harvest through my laziness, through my fearfulness, through my indifference, through my unwillingness, through my temptations that I've yielded to. I'll stand in the bean field. If I'm the only one, I'll stay. I'm told that many years ago an infidel came to town. He stood up in a great auditorium packed with people, I think two or three balconies in that auditorium. And for over an hour he derided the Bible 
spoke contemptuously of God, criticized anybody who believed in the supernatural, insulted the intelligence of those who dared to think that God had created the world. And when he was done with his mocking and scoffing and scorning, he stood up on that stage and he said, Now does anybody here dare to refute a single thing I've said? Oh, there were plenty that disagreed with him. But nobody who was willing to stand. Nobody who felt that their arguments had any chance of succeeding in the face of such a brilliant, though evil, man. And just about the time he was ready to declare total victory, a little teenage girl, 13, 14 years old, Way up at the top of one of the balconies stood up, and in a weak and quavering voice, she began to sing, Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high the royal banner. It must not suffer loss. And another stood with her, and they sang together from victory unto victory. His army shall he lead. And then there were five and ten and twenty and fifteen, and that balcony stood in the next and the next until finally the entire crowd was together on their feet singing, Stand up! Stand up for Jesus! The strife will not be long. This day the noise of battle. The next, the victor's song. And when they'd sung through that great hymn of the faith, the crowd galvanized by the action of one young lady, they looked around and they said, Hey, where is that unbeliever? Where is that atheist? Where is that infidel that mocked our beliefs all night? He was gone. He was gone. He could stand against the arguments of any individual, he thought, but he could not stand against one little girl who said, I'll stand up for Jesus, though nobody else does. Heavenly Father, I pray you'd help us stand. I wish I had time to make all the applications that could be made. Some of us need to stand at our place of business. Some of us need to stand where we're employed. Some of us need to stand in our neighborhood, to stand with our families, to stand. Of course, bring your Bibles to church. Nobody would come to church without a Bible, and everybody would keep their Bible with them to give it careful attention at all times. And uh, you know where Hosea is, don't you, Pastor Dalton? Is your Bible open to Hosea? Brother Dalton left his Bible up here. And uh, so I can say anything I want to this morning. He won't think it's wrong. Brother Black used to tell the story of the truck driver that was going down the road and saw he had a big semi-load of chickens. He saw a hitchhiker, and he pulled the truck over, and the hitchhiker started to climb up into the cab of the truck. And uh, the hitchhiker just about to get in. The truck driver said, before I let you in, I have to ask you a question. Do you have a Bible? The The hitchhiker said, why would I have a Bible? I'm out here hitchhiking. And the driver said, sorry, no Bible, no ride. And a few minutes later, they saw another hitchhiker, slowed down the truck, pulled it over, hitchhiker started to climb in. He said, man, I have to ask you first before I let you in, do you have a Bible? He said, no, I don't have a Bible. I'm out here hitchhiking. He said, sorry, no Bible, no ride. A few minutes later, a third hitchhiker pulled the truck over. Hitchhiker started to climb in the cab. The driver said, do you have a Bible? The guy said, no, I don't got a Bible. He said, no Bible, no ride. And a few miles down the road, he saw a fourth hitchhiker, stopped the truck, Hitchhiker started to climb in the cab. The driver said, before I let you in, I have to ask you, do you have a Bible? The guy said, well, yes, I do. I have a New Testament. I carry with me all the time. He said, come on in. There was a parrot sitting in the truck between the driver and the passenger side. 
The truck driver said, I get tired of talking to this stupid parrot all the time. I'd like to have some company. But he said, I don't know who you can trust. Things are bad out there. And I figure if the guy's got a Bible, he's probably all right. So the hitchhiker climbed in. The truck driver said, just a minute, let me get rid of this dumb parrot. He went back, opened the big double doors of the semi, threw him in with the little chickens, closed the doors, and got back in the truck. Had not driven but another 20 minutes. And a police car came by, and the flashing blue light in his side mirror made him know that he had to pull over. And he pulled the truck over, and he said, Officer, what in the world's the matter? What have I done? I wasn't speeding. He said, no, no, you haven't done anything wrong. He said, you're carrying a load of chickens, aren't you? And the truck driver said, well, yeah, how'd you know that? He said, I thought you'd like to be aware you've been losing chickens the last several miles. And the truck driver thought, that can't be. I know I closed those doors. And so he went back to check it out, and sure enough, here's the parrot reaching out, grabbing the chickens by the neck, saying, no Bible, no ride. No Bible, no ride. No Bible, no ride. So bring your Bible to church so that you can go along for the ride, all right? Will you do that? Hosea chapter 7, verse 1, when I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered and the wickedness of Samaria, where they commit falsehood, and the thief cometh in, and the troop of robbers spoileth without. And they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Let me ask you a question. Brother Evilsizer, does the Lord remember all your wickedness? No, He doesn't. Brother Clark, does the Lord remember all your wickedness? No, He doesn't. Brother Edie, does the Lord remember all your wickedness? Brother Mike McDonald, does the Lord remember all your wickedness? Well, it says here He remembers all Israel's wickedness. Why does He remember all their wickedness and He doesn't remember these guys' wickedness? Because unconfessed sin is still charged against you and it is remembered by God. But sin that is confessed is covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and God says that his sins he will remember no more. That's good news. You ought to get excited about that. But he said, I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about. Middle of verse 2. They are before my face. They make the king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. Leaders in this era loved evil. They are all adulterers as an oven heated by the baker who ceased from raising after he hath kneaded the dough until it be leavened. In the day of our king, the princes have made him sick with bottles of wine. He stretched out his hand with scorners. They have made ready their heart like an oven, whilst they lie in wait. Their baker sleepeth all the night. In the morning it burneth as a flaming fire. They are all hot as an oven, and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen. There is none among them that calleth unto me. Ephraim hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. And the pride of Israel testifieth to his face, and they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek after him for all this. The title of my message is taken from verse 9. Gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. And God helping me, I want to preach to you this morning on gray hairs here and there. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit would empower me, would control me, would direct me, would use me. Lord, I pray that your children would turn their hearts back toward you. And I pray that you'd help us to see what's happening in our lives right now. Some of us, like Ephraim, have mixed ourselves among the people. Some of us have become like an unturned cake. The gray hairs, symbolic of decay, have begun to appear, but we're not even aware of it. I pray for unsaved people, people who don't know if they died right now, whether or not they'd go to heaven. I pray you'd save them. And I pray, dear God, that you'd work in all of our hearts. Some need to obey you in baptism. Some need to unite with our church family. Some need to make things right with you. Some need to be saved. I pray that each one would do what you would have them to do. We'll give you the praise and the glory. Bind the devil and his demons. Don't let them distract us even a little bit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The warnings have been coming to Israel for years. Prophet after prophet has stood up and said, judgment is coming. You've disobeyed God. You've ignored his commandments. You've violated his principles. You've gone after your own way. And now judgment is going to come. They've said again and again, repent or else the judgment will come. Get right before the judgment comes. Settle things with God. If you don't, there is no way to avoid the judgment that is going to come. And all of their messages have been ignored. All of their warnings have been unheeded. All of their cautions have been blown away, as it were, by the wind without ever falling on open, listening, earnest, honest ears. And now, the judgment has already started. When Hosea gives this prophecy, the capital city of Israel, Samaria, has already fallen to the Assyrians. Numbers of God's people have already been taken into captivity, but there are many that have not yet been affected. But surely now, with the news of Assyria capturing Samaria, and if the capital city is gone, how much easier will it be to come into the outlying areas where the defenses are not as strong, the walls are not as high, the soldiers are not as many, and take them into captivity. Surely now that judgment has started, God will have an easy time. Surely now the prophet of God will be able to stand and people will listen listen with rapt attention they'll respond with vigorous amens they'll turn from their wickedness and get things right with god i mean now certainly people will listen to god's message through god's messenger but instead of returning to god the people in hosea's time not only didn't heed Hosea's message, they paid no attention to the judgment that had already started. They were unaware of what God was already permitting to happen in judgment upon their nation and in judgment upon their lives. You know, it is a sad thing to so sin that you must receive the judgment of God, to so ignore the warnings of His prophets that you cannot escape what God wants you to escape. God takes no delight in punishing and judging His children. His, children. His desire is for your obedience. He's after your consecration. He's not after your judgment. But how much sadder it is that when the judgment has already started, they did not even recognize that it was coming from God. 
And Hosea, talking to the people of God about their backsliding, says, Gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. And I want you to see just two things from this passage this morning. I want you to see the cause of Israel's backsliding, and then I want you to see the consequences of Israel's backsliding. God loved Israel above all the nations of the earth. In a special and unusual way, he had made them the object of his favor and the object of his blessing. He had promised them that there would be rain for their crops, there would be deliverance from their opponents, there would be blessing upon their children, that there would be fruitfulness in their vineyards and their orchards. He had promised them that he would be with them and bless them as long as they obeyed him. And he gave them some very clear instruction. He gave them some very definite principles about how they ought to live their lives. What has happened now that Israel, instead of being the object of God's favor and enjoying His special blessing, is now under the judgment of God? What is the cause of their backsliding? Verse 8, the Bible says, Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. God is speaking there of foreign alliances that have been made by the nation of Israel with ungodly nations and have caused them to become weak. He hath mixed himself among the people. Do you know that God gave a commandment to the people that belonged to him, and he said, I don't want you making any alliances with pagan nations. I don't want you having treaties. I don't want you having times where you agree to work together. He says, my people are not to be connected to the ungodly people. And this story teaches us as we look at the cause of Israel's backsliding and find out that it is because they have mixed themselves with the ungodly it teaches us the importance of singularity or independence or autonomy this is an independent Baptist church the word independent is not a noun that describes the group we join it is an adjective that describes how we do and ought biblically to operate. Let me say, first of all, that this is a principle, the principle of singularity, that applies to a nation. God does not bless the nation that allies itself with other ungodly nations. May I just say it plainly? The United States doesn't have any business doing anything with the United Nations. Our soldiers ought not to fight under United Nations flag. They ought not to be commanded by a United Nations commander. This is the United States of America. And if you join the United States Army, then you ought to fight under the flag of the U.S. of A. and nobody else's flag. We ought not to make alliances with communist China, not allowing the preaching of the Word of God, not allowing people to go to church, not allowing the gospel to be presented to people on the street corner. And there are my, some, of, some of the people that I watch on the television that our conservative commentators say we need to do it because of money, but there is a principle more important than economics, and God says don't mix yourself with the ungodly. Let me tell you something else. That is a principle that applies 
not only to the nation, it applies to the church. This church is not a member of the National Council of Churches, and as long as I'm the pastor, it never will be. The National Council of Churches, there's all kinds of people in there. Some believe the Bible and some don't. Some believe Jesus is the virgin-born Son of God, and some believe that Jesus was just a good teacher who was born illegitimately to a peasant woman back in Palestine a couple of thousand years ago. Some believe that the blood of Jesus Christ washes away our sin, and some believe that the blood of Jesus Christ was mere human blood that was sprinkled on the ground and washed away through the sand by the first rain that fell on that Judean hillside after Jesus died. And I want to tell you something. God's people have no business mingling themselves with ungodly people. We do not join hands with the devil's crowd even in order to do the work of God. God says don't mess with that. Now look it. I am against denominationalism. There is not in this church and ought not to be in any church biblically a hierarchy. The Bible offices are a pastor and deacons. That's all you find in the Word of God. Now, you may have other ministries. You have choir members and you have teachers and you have folks that run bus routes, but you only have two offices in the Bible, the pastor and the deacon. There is no superintendent. There is no one who comes from the denomination and says, you ought to give this percentage of your money to our programs. And pastor, you need to leave after a certain amount of time in church. You need to take on this pastor because we're sending him to you. All of that is unscriptural. This is an independent Baptist church. I'm so independent, I don't even get along with myself. And there are many good organizations that we may support, but we will not join. This church has never joined the American Association of Christian Schools. That's a good bunch of fundamental people. They're trying to do some good things. I think they're getting some good work accomplished. But you know what they do? They accredit schools and they certify teachers. And they say, well, it's all voluntary. We only do that so that you can go to your community and say, oh, yes, we are accredited by the American Association of Christian Schools, and we are certified and our teachers by the American Association of Christian Schools. No, you know what happens when you do that? You get dependent on that, and they change the rules a little bit, but you don't want to give up your certification, you don't want to give up your accreditation, and you accommodate yourself to their position, and you lose your ability to obey God directly. Understand this, the reason we are to be independent is not because we don't want anybody telling us what to do it's because we don't want anybody keeping us from doing what god tells us to do and only an independent ministry is really free to always obey god by the way we have a number of college students home i'm glad you're here we got students at bob jones we got students at hiles anderson we've got students at crown college we have at least one student at pensacola we have some students at other colleges northland baptist bible college and i want to tell you something real plain we love colleges and appreciate them and support them but this is not a bob jones church this is not a northland church this is not a crown college church you know why because the colleges are there to serve the churches the churches are not supposed to join up like it's some kind of a denomination this church belongs to jesus christ and we will never get so connected to another ministry that that ministry's falling or failure would harm us and our ability to serve God the importance of singularity and let me tell you that is not only a principle for the nation it is not only a principle for the church it's a principle for you as a family think of it like this here's a big circle that's everybody in the world 
Inside that circle is a smaller circle, which is all the Christian people in the world. Inside that circle is a smaller circle, which is all the fundamental Christian people in the world. Inside that's a smaller circle of people who are pretty much like us, independent, fundamental, soul-winning, Baptist, separated, King James Bible. And inside that's a smaller circle, and that's the First Baptist Church of Bridgeport. And there's no other church exactly like us. There's some we fellowship with, and some we love, and some we support, and some who have meetings that we promote, and they come to our meetings, and we have fellowship, but no organic connection, no organizational tie to them. But inside the First Baptist Church of Bridgeport, there's another smaller circle, and that's you and your family. And you and your family are responsible before God to live as God leads you to live. Now, you should join the church because you think you have basic agreement. Nobody will have universal agreement. But the fact of the matter is that you need to teach your children we don't do it exactly like anybody else because we're Willettes and the Willettes do it this way. And this is how we believe God wants us to live. They may go to those places, we may not. They may do those things, we may not. They may not do some things that we do. But that's all right. We're doing the best we can to apply the Word of God to our life and to our family and to live how God wants us to live. One of the great problems we have in society today is that everybody wants the security of belonging to some group. And when they get that security, they also get the control of that group and they lose their ability to obey God directly. Don't ever put a layer of bureaucracy between you and God that keeps you from obeying the Word of God no matter what anybody says or anybody does. You do what the Bible says. So this teaches us the importance of singularity and it teaches us the importance of separation. Israel got in trouble because they mixed themselves among the people. They hung around the ungodly and I'm going to lay some things out here. A little bit of this is kind of almost like a Bible study. There are three kinds of separation that we believe in as Bible-believing Christians. Number one, we believe in the separation of the church and the state. May I tell you what that means? It does not mean Christians cannot vote. It does not mean Christians cannot run for office. It does not mean that Christians cannot influence the political process. It does not mean that Christians cannot write letters to their congressmen and letters to their senators and letters to their president and say, we believe this is right and we believe this is wrong and we'd like to urge you to vote a certain way on this particular issue. It does not mean that preachers as individuals have lost their right to say, I support a certain candidate. Now, the First Baptist Church of Bridgeport cannot and should not endorse any candidate. But I have as much right as an individual to say I'm for Mickey Mouse for president as you do to vote for the other Mickey Mouses that are running for president. Especially that little short one with the big ears. He really reminds me of Mickey Mouse. It does mean this that the government may not regulate the affairs of the church. Some of you haven't been here long enough to remember we spent eight years in a legal battle with the state of Michigan because they said you have to send your teachers to secular colleges, ungodly colleges, and give them 18 hours of extra work after they get their bachelor's degree, and they must be instructed by these pagan instructors to come back and teach in your school. My Bible says cease to hear the instruction that causes thee to err 
from the words of knowledge. I would shut down the entire school. I would do whatever was necessary. There'd be a cold day where the boogerman lives before I'd ever go to these dear teachers who have given their lives to raise young people and teach young people how to live for Christ and say to them, you got to go to some pagan school and let some godless instructor tell you a bunch of garbage so that you can come back and teach our kids. It's not going to happen. The government may not manage the affairs of the church. Not going to happen. Now, we believe in separation of church and state. The lawyer said to me one time, he said, well, you know, it is my tentative conclusion that if the government wanted to make you take a license for being a parent, and all you had to do was provide a cell safe and clean and helpful environment for that child, it's my tentative conclusion that I would accept such a license. I said, it is my non-tentative conclusion that I would not accept such a license. He said, why? You take a license to drive. I said, the government owns the roads. They don't own my kids. Children are in heritage of the Lord. They're not my children. They're not, not your children. They're not the state's children. They are God's children. Our job is to raise them to serve him. So we believe separation of church and state. By the way, when we build a building and they say you've got to put sprinklers in the building, we put sprinklers in the building. That doesn't have a thing to do with us doing the work that God commands us to do in his word. When they say you have to certify your Sunday school teachers, we'll say no. When they say we have to come in and tell you who can work in your nursery, we'll say no. When they say we want to inspect your curriculum in the school or the, or the Sunday school, we'll say no. They have stupid laws that we obey. We have a looped water line all the way around this building. cost us $54,000. We have four fire hydrants on our property. Every dog in Bridgeport comes to our church. We had to have a looped fire system, looped water line, so that in case while we were having a fire, if one side of it broke, we could get water from the other side because these brick buildings can go awful fast. And it's very common that Water lines, 12-inch water lines, buried two, three feet under the ground. They break a lot. Dumb. $54,000. Yeah, but I didn't fight it. You know why? Because that didn't have anything to do with us obeying the Word of God. We have an elevator. It has never been used, except for people to play with it. I took about six people on it one time, and we punched the buttons, and it ran and ran and ran. I opened the door. We were still where we started. And I discovered that it's not quite as heavy duty as the ones at the hospital and other public buildings. We paid fifteen dollars or $18,000 for that elevator because the government said you have to have it in case somebody with a wheelchair wants to go to a Sunday school class upstairs and we have an elevator. But they may not influence or control the church on matters that concern our obedience to God. Second kind of separation is ecclesiastical separation. The Bible not only talks about the separation of church and state, it talks about separation of God's people from other religious people. You know, not everybody who says they're Baptist believes the Bible. You understand that? One-third of American Baptist uh, preachers do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God says, I may not be connected with the ungodly, even if it is for a good purpose. I'm not trying to get anybody mad. I don't have to try to get people mad. I get people mad just accidentally. Let me tell you something. The Roman Catholic Church teaches salvation by works. 
They teach you get to heaven if you get there by what you do and by what others do for you in saying prayers and offering masses. The Bible teaches salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And I cannot cooperate with the Roman Catholics in any spiritual endeavor because the message they preach is contrary to Scripture and it sends people to hell if they believe them. They preach, are you saying all Catholics go to hell? Nope. Some Catholics go to heaven, some Baptists go to hell. But I'm saying nobody who believes the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church will go to heaven. You trust what the church of Rome teaches you for salvation and you will die and go to hell because salvation is not in your penance. Salvation is not in the priest who mediates for you. Salvation is not in the Pope. The Bible says neither is there salvation in any other for there is none of a name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is only through Jesus that there is salvation. So I cannot cooperate. And that means when promise keepers opens the door to the Roman Catholics, I cannot cooperate. When they embrace the Mormons, I cannot cooperate. Ecclesiastical separation. And then there is a third kind of separation, and that is personal separation. Let me read you a passage which explains the principle of personal separation. The book of Haggai, right between Zechariah and Zephaniah. Verse 12 of chapter 2 says this, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Here's the story. Haggai says the priest is carrying something holy in his garment. He touches something that is unclean. Does the unclean become clean? And they said, No. All right, he said, here is somebody that is holy and they touch something that is unholy, unclean. Do they become unclean? And the priest said, yes. How many of you have a cold? Anybody got a cold? Good night. Okay, uh, Annette has a cold. Brother Jim, have you got a cold? You have one too. Why didn't you raise your hand? He just got over one, okay? Uh, uh, who, who else has a cold? I need a husband and wife where, where one has that. Brother Renneke, you have a cold? Diana, do you have a cold? You don't have a cold. So Diana has good health. Her husband has bad health. What I'd like you to do, Diana, is give a good long kiss to your husband, and that way he can catch your good health. Will that work? Rick says it won't work, but it'd be fun trying. Can her healthy kiss make him healthy? Yes or no? No. But I'll tell you what. Supposing Rick wants to give Diana his cold. Supposing he gives her a nice long kiss, can that help her catch his cold? Sure enough can. As a matter of fact, most cold germs are passed on by handshake. Somebody goes, ha-ha-choo! Then you go, hi. And then you go, huh. You got it. Or you wipe your eye. Or taste their fingernail polish or whatever. You don't catch good health, you catch bad health. And God gives us a marvelous principle in the Bible that says my people must be separate from that which is harmful to them. This is a principle that deals with purity. The Bible says in Philippians 4, 8, that we should think on those things that are pure. 
That is, I must be careful that I do not allow impure things to influence me or I will become impure. If a good man watches a bad TV program, it has a bad effect on his mind. If a good woman reads a bad book, it has a bad effect on her mind. If a good family fellowships with an evil family, it can have a bad effect on them. If a good man listens to a bad joke, then it has a bad effect on him. And God says, you better understand this. You are not strong enough to take it. I'm not trying to teach you to see how much evil can be around you without destroying you. I want you to be separate from that which is wrong. The Bible says, wherefore come ye out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord of hosts. Touch not the unclean thing and I'll receive you and will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters. It's a principle that applies to purity, the principle of personal separation. It's a principle that applies to the public. Romans 14, 16 says, let not your good be evil spoken of. Now, there are some things I could do that would be good, but they might cause people to think that I was doing something bad, and so I should not do them. Uh, let me ask you a question. Is leather unspiritual? Yes or no? Is leather unspiritual? No, unless you're an animal rights activist. Funny thing, I, I, I've seen them against furs. I haven't seen them be against leather shoes yet. Or leather belts. Or leather seat covers. You might want to check that out next time you talk to one of them. Is the color black an inappropriate color to wear for clothing, yes or no? No. That's me who said yes. I don't think so. I'm wearing black socks. There's some, I don't know, black in this tie. I sometimes wear black shoes. Sometimes I wear a black suit. So if I come next Sunday and I have on black leather pants and a black leather jacket, would that be all right with everybody? <laughs> now I'm going to go out soul winning in my black leather pants and my black leather jacket. I'm going to knock on doors and say, I won't even say, hey, dude, I'll just say hello. I'm Pastor Willette from First Baptist Church in Bridgeport. I was just stopped by to visit. Could I come in and chat with you a little bit? Brother Chapman, I visited your house Thursday night. It was dark. You guys looked out the door for us. Make sure who was there. Let me ask you a question. Would you have been a little nervous if I was wearing black leather pants, black leather jacket? Been a little nervous? Would you maybe have hesitated to open the door and let me in? Yeah, I led him to Christ Thursday night. And I couldn't have got in his house by his testimony if I was dressed like that. Nothing wrong with it. Brother Dalton dresses like that all the time. I don't know for sure what he wears when he races those motorcycles, but I think he wears something like that. He's the, he, what was your ranking now? You still, he's the, he was ninth last time. He is the seventh ranked motocross motorcycle racer in the state of Michigan. That's why I keep him around. Lousy assistant pastor, but a wonderful motorcycle racer. He does a great job as assistant pastor. Wonderful job. And he may wear a leather jacket when he does that. I don't care if he wears leather pants. But the truth is, if I went out visiting like that, though it is not bad, my good could be evil spoken of. So it's a matter of purity. It's a matter of public testimony. And ultimately, it is a matter of pleasing God. Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 29, I do always those things that please him. You can reduce the Christian life. I preached a sermon on this year or so ago, you can reduce the Christian life to two words, please him. 
Some of our people, I've been in their homes and been pleased to see they've taken up the little challenge that I gave them and next to the television, there's a little card that says, please him. So that they're careful when they turn the TV on to only watch those things that please him. It wouldn't be bad to have one next to the telephone so that you only say in your phone conversations those things that please him. It wouldn't be bad to have one on the mirror so that when you choose what clothes to wear and how to fix your hair in the morning, you dress in such a way as to please him. It wouldn't be bad to put one by the stereo and by the car radio so that you only listen to those things that please him. It wouldn't be bad to have one by your wallet so that you only spent your money on those things that please him. Now, some of you don't like this. And by the way, I haven't got real specific yet. I, you're, you're just waiting for me to preach against videos and movies and drinking and dancing and smoking and swearing and all the rest of it. And I'm against this stuff. But listen, don't argue with me. Argue with God. Is it pure? Is it a good public testimony? Does it please Him? If it's not, He says, stay separate from that. But I want you to notice not only the cause of Ephraim's backsliding, They've actually, because they've mixed themselves among the people, that teaches us the importance of singularity, the importance of separation. Notice, number two, the consequences of their backsliding. Verse 8, Ephraim, he has mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. How many of you have ever made pancakes? Now, I need somebody who's an expert in this. When you make pancakes... How many sides of the pancake do you cook? Both sides. Very good. All right. How long do you put it on one side and how long on the other? Anybody can tell me? Brother Romick, he can't tell me. Till it bubbles. Okay? So it gets all the holes on the top. So they just make pancakes and sing, it's bubbling, it's bubbling. How long would you say that is on average? Is it 30 seconds, a minute? What do you think? A minute? Okay, I got a, I got a time for a minute. So here's what I want you to do. There's a new way of making pancakes, and it doesn't take nearly as much effort. You, instead of putting it on one side for a minute and then have to stand there, wait till the minute's up, and the bubbles have bubbled and the holes have come and you flip it over, why don't you just put it on one side for two minutes? That'd be all right? Why not? It'd be burned on one side. What about the other side? Would be not cooked. That's what the Bible says happened to Ephraim when they backslid. They were a cake not turned. You love pancakes? I love pancakes. I like pancakes good and hot. I like them with real butter. I mean cholesterol-causing, artery-clogging, heart-attack-inducing, real butter. God didn't make margarine. He made butter. The Bible says, butter and honey shall he eat. Doesn't say anything about margarine. Take all your plastic imitation margarine. It's just as bad for you. A little less cholesterol, just as many calories. And uh, I like pancakes hot with real butter and about six gallons of maple syrup all over them. So we're going to have a big pancake breakfast and all the pancakes we serve you will have been cooked for two minutes on each on one side and no minutes on the other side each. you think we get many takers I not only couldn't sell pancakes like that I couldn't give pancakes like that away 
They are absolutely worthless. And God said, Ephraim, you are worthless. You're like a pancake that's only been cooked on one side. And may I say something, when God's people get all entangled with the world and they look like the world and they smell like the world and they talk like the world and they act like the world and they think like the world, God says, you are worthless to me. Not only worthless, they were weak. Consequence number two, strangers have devoured his strength. You know what happens to unseparated people? They become weak. People who violate God's principles become weak. People who hang around with the world become weak. Brother Don Dunlap told me a while ago, I don't know if he's still doing it or not, he said he canceled his subscription to the newspaper and quit watching the news on the television or listening to it on the radio. You still practicing that, Brother Don? And you know what he said? He said he got happy. <laughs> he said he liked it. He said he got upset a whole lot less. He decided to separate himself from bad news and separate himself from biased news and separate himself from negative news, and he feels better. And I want to tell you something. The strongest Christian is not the Christian who is the most worldly wise and knows the most about how the world operates. The strongest Christian is the one that is closest to God. Strangers are devoured his strength, the consequences of Israel's backsliding. Israel became worthless. They became weak, and they became worn. You could use the word weathered. Gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. The gray hairs are a symbol of getting older. Brother Greg Holmquist here today for years, one of our deacons. I used to tease him about turning gray. He started turning gray when his, in his early 30s i wrote him a dumb little poem one time on a birthday card is the, the the days get longer and the years less gayer you're not getting older you're getting grayer you remember that did you save it did you frame it well brother holmquist would tell you there's something worse than your hair turning gray and that's when it turns loose Mine haven't turned very gray, but a lot of them have turned loose. I'd take them of any color if I could just get them to grow up there. Gray hair means you're getting older. You know, your wife is like, oh, you got a gray hair. How many, first time you notice a gray hair, you pulled it out? Doesn't work, does it? They just keep on coming. And you know why you get gray hair? Because your body's wearing out. You're decaying. You're getting older every day. You're one day closer to the grave this morning than you were yesterday morning. You're getting older all the time. And God says, here's what's happening to Israel. They are decaying, but they're not even aware of what's happening to them. Samson symbolizes what happened to the nation of Israel. He was a man with special power because he had separated himself. God, from the time that Samson was a little baby, had kept him away from dead bodies and kept him away from wine and kept him away from impurities. And Samson was given by God supernatural strength but he sacrificed his purity and took up company with a harlot 
At first, he didn't think it affected him at all. And Delilah kept trying to find the secret of his strength. He said one time, if you tie me up with new ropes that have never been used, I'll be weak as another man. And she did it. And then she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he jumped up and snapped those ropes like little pieces of string. And then he, she, she cried and she said, you don't love me. You didn't tell me the truth. He said, well, you bind me with green whiz, bow cords, like what you'd have on a bow that shoots a bow and arrow, a bow string, strong, small, but powerful. And she tied him up with those and she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he flexed his biceps and burst those bowstrings as easily as you could burst a piece of thread. She cried again and said, you don't love me. If you love me, you'd tell me the truth. And he said, if you take the seven locks of my hair and wave them into a web, then I would be as weak as another man. And she did that and tied it to the beam of the house and said, Samson, the Philistines are upon it. And he jumped up and shook his head and tore the beam out of the house. And she cried again. And he said, all right, I'll tell you the truth. You cut my hair, I'll be as weak as any other man. While he slept, she took her scissors, her razor, and shaved his head. And she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon thee. And Samson said in his heart, I will arise as at other times. I'll go out and destroy them. And the Bible says, he wist not the Spirit of God had departed from him. He lost his purity. And ultimately, he lost his power. And he lost the presence of God. And he went out and was easily subdued by the Philistines. They took him and put him in the position of an ox, of an animal. They poked out his eyes. And this blind man man is grinding around a pedestal the labor of a dumb animal and samson loses everything why because he did not maintain separation that's why and i want to say that the church of jesus christ today is in trouble gray hairs are appearing here and there and we don't even know it i go places and i hear music that doesn't belong in the church any more than dancing and drinking belong in the church the gray hairs have appeared though the people clap they think it's wonderful. By the way, we don't clap for singing here. We don't clap for people to come to minister for God. There is a rare occasion we express honor to someone by an ovation, and I think that that can be appropriate. But brother, we don't come sing these songs to impress you. We sing these songs to glorify God and to stir your heart and your spirit and to draw you closer to God. And we don't need applause when you say, Amen. You're saying, I agree with the message of that song. I was blessed in my heart by that. We are not trying to glorify people. We're trying to glorify God. They clap for the songs, and they think they're wonderful, and they're no different than what is played on the rock and roll radio station. They have youth activities, and the teenagers engage in behavior that ought never to take place in the house of God, but they think it's wonderful. They have rock concerts, and thousands of teenagers come, and they say, isn't this great how we can reach this young generation with the music they like and then tell them about Jesus? You have done yourself no good when you corrupt your message by bringing the world in, the gray hairs have appeared here and there, and they don't even know it. But there's some gray hairs in your head that you don't know about, maybe. If I could take you back to 10 years ago and show you how some of you dress and show you how you dress now, you'd see there's some gray hairs. You've lost your principle of separation as it applies to the way you dress. 
Some of you watch junk on the television now you would never have tolerated a decade or two decades ago. Some of you allow yourself to engage in activities now that a few years ago you would have said, no, that's wrong, I won't do it. Gray hairs here and there. Thou knewest it not. Pat Boone was a good-looking, handsome, talented Christian. They said, Pat Boone wants to be in movies. He said, no, I don't want to be in the movies. I'm a Christian. I want to live my life for God. They said, oh, come ahead. It'll be all right. He said, well, I'll go. But under these circumstances, I'll never smoke a cigarette. I'll never drink a bottle of whiskey or beer. I will never kiss a woman other than my wife. And Pat Boone went to Hollywood and ended up doing all three of the things he promised he'd never do. Gray hairs showed up here and there, and he knew it now. An evangelist used to preach at our church, good preacher, good man. I knew him to cancel a meeting with a man in Nebraska because a man called him up and he said, Brother so-and-so, you're going to be here one Sunday. Would you do me a favor? While you're here, would you please not preach against women wearing slacks? And the evangelist told me this himself. He said, my brother, you have just canceled our meeting. And he said, why? He said, there's not a chance in a thousand I'd preach about that in a one-day meeting at your church. But he said, now if I come and I preach on that, I hurt your church, and I don't want to hurt your church. And if I come and ignore something I believe in order to satisfy you and keep you from having trouble, then I'm a compromiser, and I don't want to be a compromiser. And he said, I can't come. A man of God who has understanding of the Scripture doesn't go any place there's a limit put on his message. But I live to see the day that preacher started running around with the Southern Baptists, preaching for them, having them preach for him, defending his position, going to places where John MacArthur was on the program, who does not even believe the blood of Jesus Christ is necessary for our salvation. says it wasn't his blood, it was his death. And I live to see the day in that preacher's paper where he advertised a camp for cheerleaders. And the girls in the picture were in shorts and skirts that were a good 12 or 14 inches above their knee. What happened to him? By the way, you ask him, he'll say, I haven't changed a thing. Thanks for listening to The Baptist Pulpit, 2 Timothy chapter 4 says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We pray that through the challenging preaching of the word of God today, that you will be encouraged to stay faithful in preaching the word and hearing the word. Lester Roloff many years ago said, the world's greatest need is preaching preachers. Let's pray that in this day and this hour, we will stay faithful to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening to The Baptist Pulpit.